does that. But the, the Bible, though, doesn't pan away. Instead, it zooms in. And the lens of Scripture just focuses in on wicked, awful, sinful behavior. And it doesn't apologize for it. It just gives it to us straight. Nor should we apologize for it. Because that's life. Life is not filled with rainbows, lollipops, and bubble gum. You know, not, not everything is a Disney movie. Our sin must be confronted, it must be dealt with, and the Bible puts it on full display, as unpleasant as it may be, to show us our sin, but then show us the remedy for our sin, and that is Jesus Christ. And we see both in our text here today. So Genesis 38, if you would please stand as we honor God with the public proclamation of his word. We're going to cover the entire uh, chapter, all 30 verses, uh, but I want, I want to let the story unfold as we go. So we're just going to look at the first five verses to begin. It says this. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Harah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kazib when she bore him. The word of God. You may be seated. So let's set the context here. Where are we at? Okay, last weekend we finished up chapter 37 with Joseph being sold into slavery to Egypt. Okay, that's how chapter 37 ends, and that's how chapter 39 begins, without missing a beat. Yet right in the middle is where we are today, with chapter 38. And it's like this chapter just got plopped down in the middle of the Joseph narrative. And we're just getting into the story and everything, and all of a sudden, we have an entire chapter that has no mention of Joseph. Instead, the focus shifts from Joseph to one of his older brothers named Judah. And we're going to get to know Judah quite well here today. Verse 1 begins, it happened at that time. So the context here is that, is that this account is happening right around the time where Joseph finds himself in Egypt. But it's not a strict chronological order, like, you know, Genesis 37 happened, and then 38, and then 39. It's not how it goes. There's, there's overlap in there. We're going to cover a number of years here today. And we're going to see this, this sharp contrast between these two brothers. Okay, we're going to see, you know, we saw already the integrity of Joseph, and we'll see more of that, Lord willing, in the weeks to come. But what we see here with Judah is... Let's just say the lack thereof of integrity of him. So first, Joseph, he's, he's forced to leave his family. He's sent away, sold into slavery. He leaves the rest of his brothers. And so does Judah. In the first verse, he leaves. But he's not forced out. He willfully chooses to go. And this is the beginning of some bad choices made by Judah. 
And things are going to progress and progress until we see his full depravity on full display. And when we think about the sin in our own lives, there's kind of a buildup to it, isn't there? I think there's times we, we sin in an instant. Just something happens and boom, we, we, we engage in a, in a sinful word or an action. But often there's a buildup. There's a lot of small decisions that lead us to a place where we have falling, fallen into sin. Little, little small choices, little, little compromises that we make. And once you make that first compromise, you break that seal, it's so much easier to make the second compromise than the third and then the fourth. And next thing you know, you're locked tight in the cords of your sin. But it started very subtly. And that's how it begins with Judah, with this small decision to leave his family. Now, granted, uh, his family is not the uh, model example of exemplary behavior, okay, as they sell their brother into slavery and then sit down to eat lunch, okay, while he's screaming in a well. Right? We saw that last week. Uh, these guys aren't the Waltons, all right? But uh, there's something about the protection and the provision that is uh, the positive influence, really, that's found amongst God's people. And we recognize that here at Living Water. If you're a regular attender here or a member and, and you disappear for a number of weeks, you know what happens? We call you. Not to treat you like a child or anything. We just call and say, hey, is everything okay? We, we've missed you. Are you doing okay? Because we know when people separate themselves from God's people in the local church, bad things can happen. And I've made these calls before, and I'll tell you this. It's, it's never the person on the other end is like, yeah, I know, I haven't been there, but, man, things are going great. I'm reading my Bible every day. My prayer life's never been better, and I go out and feed the homeless every night. That's never the case. Something is usually going on. So that's why we don't forsake gathering together, because when we do, we forsake the protection that comes along with it. So Judah leaves, and the text says he turned aside. When people turn aside in the Bible, never good. It's a bad thing that's about to go down. And he runs into this guy named Harah the Adulamite. Okay? He's hanging around with an unbelieving Canaanite now. So th this guy, Harah, I, I, I kind of like this guy, I must confess. He, he's like the... The bad influence, though, on Judah. Like, he's going to prove to be somebody that's not good for Judah, because every time he shows up in our account, Judah's up to no good. But, but Hurrah sounds like this, this, he's like this party animal. I mean, just the name Hurrah sounds like a party waiting to happen, right? Like, he's the guy, you know, two-fisted, dancing on the coffee table, wearing a lampshade as a hat, right? That, that's, that's Hurrah. Okay, and we'll see him throughout. But I think this is the dude that Paul had in mind when he said, bad company corrupts good morals. And I think Judah's morals were a little bit suspect to begin with, to say the least. So verses 2 and 3, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. So Judah leaves the protection of his family. He's running with an unbeliever. So of course he 
marries now an unbeliever, an unnamed woman. What we know about her is she's a Canaanite, a forbidden woman for Judah. So Judah either forgot or just didn't care about those who came before him. For example, his, his grandpa, Isaac. Isaac had some uh, words for his son, Jacob. That would be Judah's dad. Back in Genesis 28.1, he says very clearly, Isaac called Jacob, blessed him, and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Couldn't be any clearer. But Judah, for whatever reason, has no regard for this whatsoever, because he does exactly that. And this is an abiding principle, even for us today. Because in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That most certainly includes marriage, of course. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Believers marry believers. It's as simple as that. The, the scripture gives you no wiggle room. Because we think, well, we'll change the person. I'll, I'll be an influence upon them. Okay? Or even with friends. I hang around with a bunch of unbelievers. I'm trying to bring them to Christ. Well, I think, you know, they're going to have more of an influence upon you than you're going to have on the group. Maybe sometimes we overestimate our abilities. And Judah's downward descent continues. So when it comes to, to Judah and this, this unnamed Canaanite woman, uh, the language here in these verses is very significant. This is not romance. That's not what's going on here. He's not, you know, doing the whole godly courtship thing, you know, gazing into her eyes lovingly, whispering sweet nothings to her. That's not what's going on. This is straight lust. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, the text give us, gives us some hints. It comes in the form of two words. One says, he saw her and he took her. Okay, those, are, those words used in the scripture often describe illicit lust. Okay? It doesn't have to be sexual. If we go back to the garden there, Eve, what? She, she saw the fruit. It, was, it looked good. It looked tasty. She took the fruit. Okay? That would be an unlawful desire. Same thing with David and Bathsheba. David sees Bathsheba. You know, he sees her. She's hot. Because he's the king, he takes her. And adultery ensues. See, seeing and taking are code words in the scriptures for carnal lust. And that's what's happening. Yet, they end up having three boys together. They have Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And this is why you really need to have a Bible in front of you, because I want you to look at it. There's something interesting in the text here that you got to use. It'll probably escape you like it did me. Somebody pointed this out to me. Judah, he names the first one, the first one, and he names him Ur which I have serious concerns about Judah's ability to name children. I mean, Ur, which is kind of prophetic, though, because that's all this guy seems to do is Ur, right? And we're going to see what happens to Ur in a minute. But, but watch this, though. His wife, she names the other two kids. She names Onan. She names Shalem. I don't know why, this, I'll confess, this is a bit of speculation, careful speculation on my part. I mean, is it because Judah's like, hey, honey, I've already picked up names for our next two kids. 
failure and loser. And she's like, uh, I'll take care of this. I'm going with Onan and Shayla. Okay? So I don't know what's happening, but is it possible that Judah's not around? The, the text says that he was named Kazid. And, and there's not clarity there. There's a ton of ambiguity. What does that mean? Is he not with her? Is he like a derelict father? And, and therefore, she's got to name the kids. So we don't know if he's not fulfilling his fatherly duties, but it's an interesting observation nonetheless. So verse 6 continues. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. She's going to figure prominently in the story here. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever, that is a key word there, whenever. If you're a, a Bible highlighter person, you might want to highlight whenever or underline it. This was not a one-time thing. Whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar's daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So this is back in the day with arranged marriages. So Judah does this for his firstborn, Ur. And we learn that Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. We don't know what. It doesn't say. We know he was wicked, though. And this might cause a struggle. This might challenge some of our preconceived notions of what God is like. I don't think it should, though. I don't think it should. If you're following the Genesis narrative along, you just have to go back to an event happened early on in Genesis called the flood. Okay? God doesn't kill a single individual like he does here. He kills multitudes of people in, in the flood. And let me just, uh, I want to open up to you and tell you what I was thinking earlier, uh, let you into my mind a little bit, which can be a very dangerous place, but um, we sent the kids out of here because we're talking about sex and semen on the ground, and we'll get to it, you know, uh, and, and that's the right move, no, no question about it. But you know what, the kids are going downstairs, and they're learning about, of all things, the flood. It was our, okay? And I'm thinking, if they're going to have questions in here, it's kind of ironic because they might just have some questions downstairs if they're following along with the story. Like, God kills all those people by drowning? Yes. I remember years ago, uh, again, I, what I love about living water is, is you can share. I'm just going to tell you something that some of you will disagree with. I'm just going to say that at the outset. Some of you will disagree. Some of you will agree. I'm not even sure uh, if I did the right thing. I want to make that clear, okay? But when I was a children's ministry director uh, many years ago, one of the first lessons I was given was Noah's Ark. And what I did is I put up on the screen a, a picture of Noah's Ark. 
And, and you know, the real cartoony one, not the one in Kentucky or whatever. This is like the cartoon with, you know, everybody's smiling and there's, you know, the, the boat's just kind of floating on the water. You got the draft sticking his neck through the roof, like, you know what I'm talking about, right? So it's this picture, right? And I said to the kid, I said, look at the water. I said, what's missing? And they said, oh, uh, dolphins, jellyfish. And I said, no, dead bodies. <laughs> it's a better response than we got last night. There was gasping from over here. So I moved over here. I stayed with these people. I don't know if I did the right thing. And I, and I said other things, which I will not go into here, because I've already seen the responses from that one thing I shared. So, needless to say, there was some fallout, okay? I had some good conversations with parents. Listen, the reality is, I'm telling you, I don't know if it's right. To this day, I don't know if I should have said that and the other things I said. I don't know. But I was like, are we following along with the story? I mean, we sometimes, we, we focus on the eight people that got saved. Praise the Lord. But what about the 800,000 or 8 million that perished that day? Do we ever think about them? You know, I gotta believe there's people banging on the side of the ark. Let us in. A horrific scene. And they could hear the screams, perhaps, as people drowned. But that time was over. It was, it was time of judgment. And I wanted to make that point. And you know what? And, and yeah, we didn't, you know, some of the parents, we had some good conversations. And you know what? I didn't get fired. I'm still here. I think built our relationships because that's what we do here. We, we don't always agree. You're not going to always agree with me, and I'm not going to always agree with you. But this is the place where we should ought to be able to disagree and discuss. Because that's something that's lacking in our world today. You can't disagree with somebody. You're a hater. You're a bigot. You're the worst person in the world. But here, we can say, I love you, I disagree with you. Can we talk about it? Absolutely. And we still may leave disagreeing. Hugs, handshakes should follow, and smiles every time we see that person. That's, a, I don't even know where I'm at. That is a total separate sermon. We get back. This is what happens when you leave the notebook, okay? But they, these things, this is the Bible. This is in the Bible, and we can discuss how do you teach the kids, but it's hard stuff that we as adults even will wrestle with. God is the giver of life, and he can take life anytime he wants. And he's completely just in doing so. He can and does do it. And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, I know, Mike, that's the God of the Old Testament. That's the mean God, okay? God of the New Testament, same God. Same God. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Right? They sold some land, gave proceeds to the church. When asked, did you, set, did you donate all? Yeah, we did. No, they didn't. They lied. <laughs> dead, dead. One right after the other. God killed them for that reason. See, we sometimes think that, that uh, God is like my Uncle Dominic. My, my Uncle Dom, what I remember about him, two things. One, he always had trident spearmint gum. He's always chewing it, and he always had a piece for me. Big old smile, he'd give that piece to me, which is never good enough. I needed like five. Those things are like tiny. So. 
to somebody. But he always gave me gum, and then he uh, he'd always use the guy, he had very, these baggy pants, he's always jingling change in his pocket. He'd always have a quarter for me. And he'd say, don't spend it all in one place. Like, and that's what I remember about him, sweet guy. But you know what? I could do no wrong in this man's eyes. I, I couldn't do a thing wrong. I'm, I'm at the table slurping spaghetti, getting sauce all over the tablecloth, driving my dad nuts. Uncle Don, he didn't care. He thought it was great. It's probably because Aunt Mary did the laundry. <laughs> he didn't care. I mean, I could literally like burn down their neighbor's house, and he'd be like, yeah, you know, boys will be boys. Looks like we got a budding arsonist in the family. I mean, that was my Uncle Dom. Needless to say, though, God is not like my Uncle Dom. He takes sin seriously. He's holy. He punishes sin. And we would do well to remember that in our own lives and accurately represent that character of God to others. Verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, that's his second son, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Let me explain this here. This is something called leveret marriage, okay? It was uh, codified in the law in Deuteronomy uh, 25. Uh, you can read it there in verses 5 through 10 if you're a note taker. Uh, you should read it. It's really interesting. There's a woman spits in a guy's face and removes his sandal. It's, it's bizarre. It's fascinating. I had to cut it out because it was going to be too long of a sermon. But what it was is uh, leveret marriage uh, is what is being instructed here by Judah. The oldest son, he would, he would die without uh, providing offspring by his wife. And so what would happen is the next oldest son would then marry the widow and, and produce a child by her. And that child would take the name and the inheritance and everything that came along with being a child of the, the oldest son, even though he was deceased. Okay? You follow that? That, that? That's what's going on here. It may seem strange to us, but uh, this is what Judah instructs Onan to carry out. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring wouldn't be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Now, if you look up in the dictionary, there's something called Onanism. This guy, Onan, he has an ism named after him. Okay? Thus, if you look it up, the first definition, one, one, there's multiple definitions. One, coitus interruptus. That's what's happening here. But that's not the first definition. The first definition is a single word, masturbation. That's what it is. I'm here to tell you, this text is not about masturbation. Okay? God did not kill Onan for masturbating, despite what fundamentalist preachers might have told you, okay? And that's not a knock against them. I, I consider myself fundamentalist, okay? I like to think I put the fun in fundamentalist, okay? <laughs> but this is a misuse of the text. It's, it's just, and we point that out. When it's, when it's prevalent, I look this up. I want to know what the Bible had to say about masturbation. I learned Onanism. Who's this Onan? I look it up. And I was like, really? I'm not seeing it. Because it's not there. That's not what's happening here. By the way, I'm not advocating for masturbation in any form or fashion. Right? What's going and I promise that'll be the last time I say the word masturbation. <laughs> 
questions. Text, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, when I, when I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, it, it never occurred to me that I'd be standing up in front of hundreds of people in a church talking about semen and masturbation. I gotta admit, I didn't see this coming. But what's going on here is this is Onan's failure to fulfill an obligation to his family. He's being selfish, which you could make a strong case for that other word that I said I wouldn't say <laughs> is very selfish. I think you can make that case, but again, that's not what's in view here. Onan didn't want to father a child for someone else, even if it was his deceased older brother. He didn't want to do it. He's not interested in continuing the family line. He didn't want to share the inheritance. Why? He's the next oldest son. And yeah, I mean, he, he didn't have a problem having intercourse with her. He didn't have a problem with having an orgasm. He didn't want the responsibility that came along with that pleasure. And does that not describe our culture today? That's exactly where we're at. <laughs> Sex without strings attached. Polyamory, if you know what that's all about. Pleasure without responsibility. Friends with benefits. It's where we're at as a culture. And frankly, it's amazing to me that the wrath of God has not fallen on America in totality. It's being revealed now. But it hasn't fallen in totality yet. But it's coming. Because that's exactly what God did to Onan. It also took his life. So now we have two dead brothers, and Shayla is left, the youngest. And according to Judah in verse 11, Shayla's too young for marriage, so he tells Tamar, go back to your family, okay? Seems reasonable, right? But I think he's being disingenuous here. I think he's being disingenuous because the narrator says that Judah feared that Shayla would die like his brothers. Okay. I think what Judah is happening is going on here with him, he sees Tamar as like jinxed. Like he's like, I see the pattern here, you know, uh, she marries my oldest son, he's dead. Second oldest, he dies. I'm not giving up my third oldest, my last boy. But he fails to realize in his superstition that they're dead, not because of Tamar, but because of their own sin and disobedience. So verse 12 says, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, to his sheep shears, he and his friend, Hurrah, the Adulamite. So now Judah's wife, she dies, and there's a period of mourning. And after their, that mourning, there's something called sheep shearing that's going on. And, and this is why we need to be not just readers of our Bible, we need to study it. Because when I read that, I just simply read through that, I'm like, sheep shearing? What? That sounds like horrible, like just boring, like what are they, just shearing sheep, you know? It sounds like the, the opposite of a, of a party. But that's not true. It's actually a huge party. Sheep shearing was like this uh, time for drinking and eating and carousing and think like Mardi Gras. That was sheep shearing, Oktoberfest. That's what's happening. It's a festive atmosphere. And guess who's right there with Judah? His boy, Harah the Adulamite. There he is, right? If there's a party, Harah knows about it, and he's there, right by Judah's side. So verse 13, and when Tamar was told, 
Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah has grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. That's Judah being disingenuous there. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. For she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me, that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So Tamar, she, she hears that Judah's going to this big old party. So she takes off her um, widow's garb and, and puts on a veil. And she's like, listen, I see what's happening here. Judah did not come through on his promise that he made to me. Therefore, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And this is a reoccurring theme in Scripture. We see it over and over again. When men are not living up to their responsibility to women, you know what women do? They take matters into their own hands. It's a common theme that we see when men aren't being men. But let's try to understand what's going on here with, with Tamar. What's her motivation? Her life is wrapped up in, in two things, marriage and family. And right now, she has neither. She lacks security. She's getting older. Her biological clock is ticking. Not to mention two former husbands are dead. I got to think that men are not exactly lining up to be with this woman. Right? And I don't think that the end justifies the means, but I'm just trying to get an understanding here of what is the situation? What is she feeling? And the reality is she's desperate. So at this point, she's kind of a sympathetic figure. But what about Judah? Think about it. What does this whole charade have to say about Judah? She's going to portray herself to be a prostitute thinking she can hook Judah. Well, why does she think that? She, she must know a little something about Judah's reputation. She must think that this is actually something that will work. Otherwise, she wouldn't even think this to be an option. She, she knows that he is susceptible to this kind of ploy. And that further shows us the depravity of Judah. So he's on his way to Timnah. He spots her. And verse 16 says, he turned to her. There it is again, turning aside. He turns to her. And just for a second, let's contrast Judah's actions here and now with what Joseph, next weekend, Lord willing, will do. All right, I'm going to steal a little thunder from chapter 39. My apologies to whoever's preaching next weekend. But Judah here, faced with temptation, sexual nature, he runs to it. Joseph, we will see... Same sexual temptation, he runs from it. And this is what the scriptures say, that we flee sexual immorality. Because guys, 
I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I have fought foolishly when faced with a temptation. I'm a man. I don't run. I stand and I fight. Well, don't be a fool like me. I think, again, we overestimate our abilities. We think we're stronger than we really are. And we need to recognize we're weak, and we need to understand how strong sexual temptation really is. And so the Bible says for us to do exactly what Joseph will do, not what Judah did here, and that is flee sexual immorality, to get out of Dodge, to quote one of my favorite pastors. <laughs> Judah, he doesn't get out, though. Instead, he's going in, quite literally. Judah says to Tamar, come, let me come in to you. I mean, this guy, we talk about a pickup line, right? <laughs> I mean, this is not Julia Roberts, pretty woman, you know, whining and dining. Uh-uh. This is fornication. This is prostitution. The oldest profession there is. And you know it, because what? It's all about the transaction at this point. Just follow the dialogue. She says, okay, what will you give me that you may come into me? He says, I'll give you a goat. This is so romantic. <laughs> She's like, I don't see any goat. I need a pledge. I need collateral. I need a little down payment first. And he says, what do you want? Verse 18. I want your signet. I want your cord and your staff. So the signet was like, as I understand, it's like this cylinder. You've heard of signet ring maybe, but there's also like these cylinders that had an image on it that would be unique to the individual. Right? And they would take that signet and, and roll it in like some soft clay or wax and it would create an indelible, unique mark for that individual. And so guys would carry this around their neck on a, on a cord. So she wants those two things and she wants his staff, the symbol of authority for a prominent person. And believe it or not, Judah is a prominent person. So these items, very personal to him. They're unmistakably his. Right? It'd be like it'd be like me giving my phone to somebody. If I gave my phone to somebody, I got this little pocket on the back here with my driver's license and my bank card. Right? If somebody ends up with this in their possession, it would be an unmistakable link from that person back to me because of how personal these items are to me. So he gives them to her. They do the deed and part with this. Verse twenty. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find it. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent the young goat, and you did not find her. So who does Judah send with the payoff for the prostitute? It's Hurrah, the Adulamite. And he's asking, hey, where can I find the prostitute that was here? Now, I have a, a John MacArthur study Bible, and I know some of you have one. This is Teresa where you're going to want to look this up. Because there's something in there that's just hilarious. I, do you ever read your Bible and just laugh out loud? I, I have an LOL moment reading the note that uh, Johnny Mac, uh, excuse me, Dr. MacArthur, 
uh, writes. He says, it was not good for one's reputation to keep asking for the whereabouts of a prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, though, I don't think Harak cares. <laughs> So, so, but some commentators, they actually said, hey, look, look, look at what Judah's doing here. Look how faithful he's being to Tamar when he thinks she's a prostitute, right? And, and look at how unfaithful he was to her when he knew that she was his daughter-in-law. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. But as I thought about it, I thought, I don't think that's it at all. I, I think they're giving Judah way too much credit here at this point. You know why? He sends the goat because she's got his stuff, right? I mean, he's not demonstrating integrity here. I think he's acting in his own self-interest. This is self-preservation. If a prostitute has my phone, driver's license, and bank card, you better believe I'm giving up the goat to get these things back. <laughs> So is he really being faithful here? I don't think so. I think he's trying to get himself off the hook. He doesn't want there to be a link between him and her beyond their sex act. But he's not getting off the hook, though. His Tamar, like the Beastie Boys say, she's crafty. She's got him exactly what she wants him. And it's only a matter of time. And that's what happens. Watch, three months later, so time goes by, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And watch what Judah says. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. He's outraged. He wants to light Tamar on fire and have her burn to death. This is harsh. This is self-righteous. This is hypocritical, it's unmerciful, and this is exactly what Jesus was referring to when he said, why do you concern yourself with a speck in your brother's eye when you got a log in your own? Judah's the poster boy for that verse as he plays the hypocrite. And this is going to become abundantly clear in a moment to everyone involved here as Tamar plays her final trump card. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. I love this. As she's being brought out to be burned to death, she's like, uh, excuse me, uh, I have one question. I'm pregnant by the man who owns this stuff. Judah, do you know who owns this? And it's like she came with like a right hook, caught him square on the button. It's over. Like this is a knockout blow. And I think like everything goes like in slow motion at this point. Right? They're all, everybody's looking at Judah and just watching him. It's like the wheels are turning inside his head. He's like, she's got me. She's got me. I, I have no, I'm dead to rights here. He's realizing what has just happened. And we need to pause here for a moment because this is a critical juncture in the story. I know I've been hard on Judah. 
I'm just trying to preach it faithfully. I'm just trying to stay close to the text here. Right? But look at the, the events that have uh, led up to this point in time. Look at Judah's actions. One, he's a slave trader. Okay? When they wanted to kill uh, Joseph, remember what he said? He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What? Let's not kill him. After all, he's our brother. Let's sell him into slavery instead. Let's make a buck off of him. That was Judah's idea. So yes, he's a slave trader. Then he leaves his family. He makes friends with a pagan party animal, hanging around unbelievers. So of course he marries an unbeliever. He, he raises his kids, if he's even around, to be godless heathens, such that God has to remove them from the planet because of their wickedness. He superstitiously fails to do right by his daughter-in-law. Need another hand. He, he, he commits incest with said daughter-in-law, thinking that he's fornicating with a prostitute. Then he wants to burn her to death for her immorality. You might think, there is no hope in the world for this guy. But that's what makes verse 26 so incredibly glorious. Look at it with me. Then Judah identified them, that's his items, and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son to shame. What I think is going on here is Judah is having a moral epiphany. Maybe for the first time in his life, he's getting downwind of himself. He's smelling himself and he knows I stink. He says, she is more righteous than I. Now, I don't think anybody's really righteous in this whole sort of affair. So some people have really elevated Tamar and they made the case, well, the scripture doesn't really say anything bad about her. I don't know. I, I don't think anybody's really righteous. What I think Judah is saying here is, is, this is righteousness. Here's Tamar. Here's me. Right? I think that's what he's saying. He's, he's getting low here. And for us, this down here is where we are ready for God. We're ready to hear what God has to say. Because if you think you're up here with righteousness, well, why would you cry out to God for anything? You don't need righteousness that comes from Him. You already got it. At least you think you do. But it's when we're down here, and we're low, and we know we're foul, and we're stinky, we're filthy, we're, we're not righteous, that's when you cry out to God for his righteousness, the very righteousness that you need that comes only through Jesus Christ. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I think this is a come-to-Jesus moment for Judah. I'll give you three reasons. One, confession. He names his sin. He says, I did not give her to my son, Shelah. He intentionally deceived her, and he admits it. Two, repentance. Does he repent? I don't know. Look at the end of verse 26. He says, he did not know her again. Sounds like repentance to me. And thirdly, transformation. Does he walk in newness of life? Is there a change in Judah's life going forward from this point? Well, we don't see it here in chapter 38. We have to keep reading. And Lord willing, we will get to it. But you really see it come crystal clear in, in Genesis chapter 44. 
What's going on there, very briefly, is uh, Joseph's in Egypt. He is a prominent person now. And Judah has this long speech where he's speaking to, of all people, his brother Joseph. And he has complete submission for him, complete respect, complete deference to Joseph, the, the man who he once betrayed. Okay? So he treats him with nothing but respect. And the situation is that their youngest brother, Benjamin, he's there in, in Egypt. But he's got to get home to dad. Because Jacob is all distraught if Benjamin doesn't make his way home. You just have to read it. It's in there, okay? And, and Judah is saying to Joseph, he's begging him, you got to let Benjamin go home for, for his sake and for dad's sake. And, and you know what Judah says? Keep me instead. I'll be his substitute. I'll stay here. I'll be your slave, Joseph, if you let Benjamin go home for the sake of him and my dad. Wow, Judah, the family man. Judah, the family man now, offering himself as a, as a sacrifice? He, he's almost like a Christ-like figure here. I, I don't want to overstate it, but we see a marked change in his life. And you know when it happens? It happens in his life and in our life when we get low. It's when we get low, you see how dirty you are and how desperately you need to be. And you confess your sin, and you repent, and it leads to life transformation. It happened to Judah, and it can happen to you too. If it hasn't already, if you're willing to get love. As great as this is, there's a kicker to this whole story, and it's a big one. Let's finish the passage here. Uh, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, now I've never given birth before, obviously, <laughs> but a baby starting to come out, then going back in, sounds like an absolute nightmare to me. <laughs> but behold, then his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breakout. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Sarah. Now, again, if we're just reading this, you say, oh, wow, look at that. You know, twins, uh, you know, it seemed to run in the family here, you know? Baby boys, and there's this wrestling going on like Jacob and Esau, and wow, he lost two kids, now he gets two kids back, two boys back. And then you, you just think, end of story, move on to chapter 39. But if you do that, you're missing something super significant. Jesus Christ, he has many titles. Fill in the blank. Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. Look with me at the first three verses of the New Testament. We're going to close right here. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Look at that. There's Judah. This Judah. There's Tamar. This Tamar. There's another Tamar. It's this one that, that we're talking about. And there's Perez and there's Zerah in the genealogy of the spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He's in the fam they're in the family line of the Messiah. 
And so what we see here is all that ugliness that we just looked at, that, that God used to produce the most beautiful thing ever, the Son of God entering into our world to die for sinners like you and like me who are no better than Judah or Tamar. It's amazing. And I love the way he did it, through this dysfunctional family. And that tells me that Jesus is not afraid to identify and associate with sinners like me. Yeah, he ate and drank with them. We know that. But they're in his family tree. Truly amazing. So what does that mean for us? That means that there's room in God's family for even the worst of the worst. You're not too far gone. You've probably done bad things like Judah. I've done bad things like Judah. Okay? But there's grace for me through, through Jesus Christ. And when we think that, we need to look at this Judah interlude here and look at what God has done in and through a ton of sin. He brought into this world our greatest blessing, the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Lord God, I, uh, I stand amazed at how you operate. That what you do in our world as you bring good from evil, you use our sin to produce uh, uh, righteousness. Really, you, you, you use things that we cause havoc in our world and you bring about glorious, beautiful things in your providence. God, it is amazing. And I can't figure it out for the life of me, my finite mind. So all I can do is worship. I just simply worship you for who you are and what you do. So as we sing this last song, let us worship you like we mean it. Because you are worthy and you are deserving of all honor.